Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. I'm very pleased to be joined on our first podcast of 2022 by River and Mercantile Fund Manager Dan Hambury. Dan runs the firm's UK Equity Income Fund, but it's perhaps small caps which are closest to his heart as he also heads up the £630 million River and Mercantile UK Equity Smaller Companies Fund, all of which should give us plenty to discuss when it comes to the UK stock market and the outlook for 2022. Dan, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. So um, uh, UK equities have performed uh, pretty well in the last year or so during the the vaccine rally and and so-called reopening trade. From from where you're sitting, what's the outlook look like for the year ahead? Yeah, as you say, the uh, equity market's made very good progress since the the nadir in March 20. And over the past year, it's up about 14 percent. Uh, which is a bit sluggish relative to other areas of the world, actually. Um, some parts of the world obviously yeah. done over 20%. And in fact, the small and mid-cap space within the UK market actually did deliver about 20% last year. So very good return. Um, and um, and that obviously leaves us gazing into our crystal balls at the beginning of 2022, asking what's going what's gonna to come next. And I, th- I think there's two ways of looking at it. First of all, obviously, we're highly correlated with other global markets. Uh, and we know that the US market dominates global markets and has been on a, a, an amazing tear, really. Um, uh, for, for a number of Absolutely. years. And so a large part of our own success will be driven by what the US market does. Um, we can't get away from that. Um, and of course, that leads us then to thinking about what's going to um, create further tailwinds or indeed in, indeed headwinds for the markets from here. And I'm sure we'll touch on some of the sort of macro indicators later. But I, I think my starting point with the UK equity market, it, it is at a, a relatively big discount uh, in the context of history to global markets. Um, we've all been waiting, as you know, for some kind of um, turnaround in, in, in the relative rating of the UK market. Um, that hasn't occurred yet. Um, but certainly I was of the view that post-Brexit, um, that, that there would be a period of indigestion probably in terms of thinking about economic growth. Um, and you know, it may be that as we start to look through the slower growth of the last two or three years, um, that we might start to see a slightly brighter outlook for the UK economy. Um, we've got a cheap currency. And of course, the markets are very international. The UK equity market is very um, international. 75% of profits are overseas. So we're actually really more driven by the global economy and, and also by the index constituents, so the actual sector makeup of the market. And of course, we've actually got more of a cyclical market than, than many markets globally, uh, certainly versus the US market. Um, and we've also got a number of sort of more deep cyclical um, type businesses. And with inflation picking up, usually um, those sort of value markets tend to do a bit better in a relative sense. So when you put all that together, um, I think after the, the strong um, recent performance in markets, I think it would be um, a brave man to say we're going to have another stonking year like we did last the last two years. But, but, but you know, when you look at it compared to bond markets, property, you know, cash, uh, when, when there's this inflation uh, about. I think a value equity market like the UK market is a pretty good, sensible place to put your money right now. Thanks, Dan. Well, a, a, a lot to think about there. But is it fair to say then that, you know, all the conditions are still in place for the UK market to go on and deliver at least about of modest outperformance, perhaps? 
Yeah, it's it's very difficult to see what the, the kind of catalyst is, as, of as course, it were, yeah. in terms of what will drive outperformance of the UK market. One one of the things that we've been postulating actually is since, again, since Brexit, is that maybe global investors will start to look at the UK in the same way they looked at Japan many years ago when Japan got carved out of Asia, and we started to talk about Asia X Japan and Japan, and maybe we'll start to think, you know, when you're an Asian investor, a sovereign wealth fund, global investor, you'll be looking into Europe, thinking maybe about continental Europe and the UK rather than sort of pan-European. And that will almost create in itself a new um, a sort of individual asset class, which 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 will, will, will provide some interest some diversification for, for, for those managers. So, I mean, that's more of a technical thing. That that might be something that, that gets interesting. Um, as I say, we've got a, a relatively cheap currency. When you look on a real effective exchange rate basis, the derating of, of sterling over the last few years hasn't really uh, got better. So, over a sort of 50-year period, we're still very much at the bottom of the range. So, a competitive currency is, is obviously helpful. And, and you could argue that things can't get a, well, you'd hope things can't get a lot worse from a sort of political point of view in terms of how the, how the world is viewing us at the yes. moment. So um, I, I think all in all, um, it's, it's always very difficult to, to put your, your, your finger on exactly what's going to turn things around. Arguably, you need better operating momentum, uh, improving return on capital, and as well as that cheap valuation starting point to really get the, the UK stock market moving in, in the right direction relative to other equity markets. Yeah. We, just coming back to something you referenced in your first answer, I mean, we're in the, we're speaking in the, the, the second week of the year and, and the first few trading days of, uh, of, of 2022 were marked by a bit of a pullback uh, in, in um, stocks in the US, particularly technology. Um, are, you, are you worried about contagion from the US market then? Uh, well, contagion in the sense that stock markets are correlated yeah. and not necessarily contagion from the the tech sector, which is obviously a huge part of the US yeah. market and has driven, you know, a huge part of their outperformance. Um, you know, most of the the upside uh, in the US market has come from the big tech stocks, uh, the FANG stocks, plus others around those. Um, so I'm not, I'm not so worried about contagion there. I and mean, I think, you know, what we've seen is obviously the bond yield rising, you know, investors, is, you know, look at the discount rates rising on these long duration stocks, stocks that are where a lot of the the, the growth in the future future value is a long way into the future, like typically, you know, you see with technology companies. So, it's 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 it would be very normal to see those stocks derating, those very yeah. highly rated stocks, uh, as we see bond yields pushing up again, which we've just seen at the beginning of the year. As you know, there's you know, the ten year has moved up from sort of one and a half percent to one point seven five pretty rapidly, mm. um, and and that's what causes that derating. Of course, in the UK market, we don't have the same number of high growth stocks no. um, at the margin you see some rotation um don't get me wrong and actually you know the fact what's quite interesting is the factor rotation you see in the market at times like this um it's been quite extreme partly because i think we had a quiet period over over christmas and new year probably and and things weren't moving at that point but you've had a very um very significant factor rotation in the the first couple of weeks of this year um not not, not too dissimilar to previous you know, periods like, you know, um, the global financial crisis where we had several weeks of really, really aggressive um, factor rotation. Or indeed, you know, when the NASDAQ bubble burst in 2000, you got that very aggressive rotation into value. Now, I, I, I personally don't think it's a, a repeat of that yet, but um, I, I think there, there has been. And of course, what, what we've certainly seen, we have a factor return model that helps drive a lot of our stock selection, um, as I'm sure other fund managers will, will use as well. And what we have seen over the last few years is a very high correlation with bond yields with those factor returns. Um, so your, your classic valuation returns or momentum returns or growth or return on capital, these sorts of measures that in the past have maybe 
being quite uncorrelated and when you put them together give you actually a really nice uh, risk adjusted return what we what we've seen is it's all been it's all been about the shape of the yield curve and being on the right side of mm. that and you've had to manage the risk around your portfolio you know in, in line with that or or, or you or you don't and, and you take one of these more extreme views there's obviously there's funds out there that are super long duration and the growth managers you've done very well over the past or you might have some extreme value managers but we we tend to be quite pragmatic with our with our own risk management um and so um we we've you know we've had a few of those high high growth stocks derating yeah um so um max site was our best performer in 2020 it went up 250 wow. percent this time last year we were trying to sell it it was quite a liquid we sold quite a bit between 10 and 12 pounds when it fell below nine pounds we stopped selling it however it's continued on down it's down at nearly i think it's down at six pound fifty now so it's almost halved mm. um that long duration stock now we haven't sold it further we think it's got um a great you know, it's got great prospects but you know that that kind of derating that happens in those high growth stocks can be quite you know quite aggressive yeah. um even though there's been no particularly bad news out of the company um so yeah one has to be mindful of that and manage that depending on your time horizon okay do you do you think i mean we're going to come and talk more about the individual funds but just talking about the magnitude of the fool there um do you think amongst smaller companies you know, these rotations happen more quickly which also gives kind of more opportunity maybe to buy back in at the right time or no, I don't think I don't think it happens more okay. quickly in smaller companies. I think I mean liquidity. That there are times yeah. when the, the you know less liquidity drives more extreme moves for mm. sure. But you know, there's been some massive moves in large yeah. caps. I mean, you know, you only have to look at you know mining stuff. You know, we bought Anglo America and at ten quid in March twenty, and, it, and then it hit thirty pounds eighteen months later. <laughs> and that's a FTSE one hundred company that's trebled in 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 a year and a half. So, you know, you get huge volatility in every part of the yeah. market. Quite honestly, um, y- yes, of course, you you get some really big winners from smaller co. The small co's winners tend to be, you know, multi baggers. They go on to grow to become big companies, mm. um, and and they can be more volatile. I think when liquidity dries up in the market, you do t- maybe get some um, overreactions on the downside for yeah. sure. Um, but but it, I think it's a misconception that small caps are kind of higher volatility, high risk. Often it's not the case. Actually, a lot of the large caps have, are more leveraged businesses, more cyclical businesses, and often they're just as volatile. Right. Actually, interesting. So you know we're, we're talking across the UK equity income and smaller companies funds which you run today. Um, the the latter is, is the bigger fund, and that hit its fifteen year anniversary in November. You've run it for for most of that time, uh, and performance has, has been good. Uh, in fact, in the last ten years, you're, you're top of the UK smaller company sector with a four hundred eighty three percent return. So, what's what's the secret? I guess. Um, I, th- I I think the you know the, the secret of doing well in any job is a combination of of of, of skill, hard work, and a big dose of mm. luck. Um, let let's be clear, and that's the same I think when you're in any career, but particularly in financial markets. And but if we just point to the skill bit to start with. Um, you know, clearly we implement an investment process, our PVT potential valuation timing process, which is quite repeatable. It's very disciplined. Uh, it's bottom-up stock selection using a quant model, f- followed up with detailed fundamental research and then sensible portfolio failure construction risk management. And it is, it is quite highly, it is pretty systematic, the way we sieve the market, the way we analyze companies. And it won't work in every short-term period. There will be one and three-year periods when that process won't deliver like any other investment process. But but over the long run, it does seem to deliver 
very good um, consistent returns. So, you know, we, that that's part of it. You, you know, you need you need a good team uh, around you, which I have. Um, you know, George Enser is a fantastic um, fund manager in his own right. He works um, very closely with me on the smaller companies. And he's fund. a micro. He's, he's a, a micro cap specialist. Trust. That's right. He's a micro cap manager, and again, look at the benefits of that. He's there sieving all these sort of four hundred odd companies, four hundred five hundred companies below where I would normally be mm. looking, finding all the real gems. And then as his winners come through, we can buy them into the small cap fund. Well, that's a brilliant position to be in to have that knowledge of those small really small names so there's that we've got some great analysts that support george and i um who who, who do fantastic work my and anna will uh, who's one of the other uk managers they're all doing great work doing the research that then feeds into these ideas so you know you need a good team you absolutely need the right environment you know you need you need the the, the environment so all all of those things are important um you need people who are passionate about investment. They've got to love, they've got to really love it. They want to keep looking for new yeah. ideas, read stuff at the weekends. You know, there is a, and that's something I've always found very interesting. I love the transparency of fund management. You know, the, the, the ranking is very transparent. It gets away from, let's call it the sales pitch, doesn't it? Uh, although of course I'm doing a bit of that now with my podcast but <laughs> <laughs> with you. Um, um, but also, you know, you, but there are times when you need a bit of luck as well. I mean, I do feel for a lot of value managers over the last 10 years mm. because, you know, I, when I started my career as a, an investor, it was at the top of the, the, the dot-com bubble and the value investors were three or four years into my career with the, with the heroes, you know, because they had, that they had outperformed very strongly as the NASDAQ bubble blew, burst and between 2000 and about 2005, you know, value investors absolutely shot the lights out. And it has been really interesting sort of in the second half of my career watching the, the struggles of, of people trying to buy cheap stocks. And you think, well, surely that's how you make money, you buy cheap stocks. But, but of course, we've had this incredible environment of, um, you know, negative real rates, the zero lower band of interest rates, which has created this ever re-rating of, of long duration growth stocks. So I... You know, some of that you could say is that skill that was it was that should that have been foresight? But I mean, clearly, there's a lot of luck involved there as well. In the short yeah. term, I think what you've got to try and do as an active fund manager is, is demonstrate skill over a long a long period of time, um, and 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 then maybe you can point to the fact you've been you know you, you've done something yeah. right. <laughs> there's definitely some stuff I'd like to pick up on there, but perhaps before we continue, you know, perhaps you can just explain to us in layman terms what 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 the process is, and maybe. You know, one of the simplest ways to do that would be, you know, how does your fund look, look different to the market or, or other funds, perhaps? Yeah. So um, at the heart of every investment decision we make, we've got um, three key cornerstones, if you like. We look for high potential companies that are going to create significant shareholder value. Uh, and our focus is very much around return on capital and growth um, in, in, in that particular fundamental pot, should we, we say. Also, from a sustainable basis as well. Um, we, we look for them to be undervalued, these companies. So clearly, we have a valuation discipline. And then we look to um, pick them up at the right time. So there's a timing element, which is about improving operating momentum and improving share price. You know, share price trend can tell you a lot. The market can give you a lot of information. It's not always the other way around. So we combine PV and T all of the time, whether we're looking at buy ideas or sell ideas. But importantly, what we don't do is say we only want to buy high quality names or we only want to buy recovery names. What we do is blend a range of different potential opportunities to make money. So we'll blend a number of high quality growth 
recovery and asset-backed businesses. And the key, and, and, and what we're doing is that, that the metrics, the financial metrics that we're using to sieve for these companies are systematically different depending on the different category of company. So if I'm looking for a really great growth stock, I have to use a different set of metrics to maybe a recovery situation where it used to be a good stock, has fallen on hard times, might even be loss-making at the moment. You, you can't analyze those two companies in the same way. You have to do it through a different lens. So, so essentially, we apply a different lens. And then there are the actual data. That's kind of philosophically what we're trying to do. What do we do in practice? Well, a lot of the, the heavy lifting gets done by our quant front end. We've got a very powerful database, which sifts globally, you know, about 40,000 stocks. Uh, it whirs away over the weekend. It throws up a ranking list for us, for us um, on a Monday morning. It doesn't pick the stocks for the portfolios. That is absolutely down to the combination of the analyst work and the portfolio manager. But what it does do is give us an objective starting point. And one of the big dangers, as you know, in markets is fear and greed. It's that behavioral psychology aspect. And that's where a quant model can really help, if you like, tame some of those fears um, uh, in the way you go about your work. Um, but it is just the starting point in the quant. Uh, just as important are the research analysts and, and the hard work they put in modeling the companies. Um, getting to understand what the drivers are of the businesses and whether they're going to grow strongly or more strongly than the market expects, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, and then, finally, timing is just really helpful because no matter how good you are as an analyst or a fund manager at picking great companies, there's, there are times when great companies underperform. I've just mentioned Maxite, yeah. you know, going down over the last twelve months. You know, if you'd bought Maxite two years ago, you, you're up over a hundred percent. If you bought it. A year ago, you're down 50%. It's the same company, but the market's just moved so yeah. dramatically um, when arguably the company's made a lot of progress. So that's where timing is absolutely crucial. You do need that relative timing help um, and, and sort of positive trend following. So we apply all of that. And then and then the other big thing is, is managing risk. Um, you know, you, you don't know the future. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what 2022 holds. So what we're always trying to do is say, let's, let's buy lots of cheap insurance policies in our portfolio. Um, let's buy companies that might pay out if a certain scenario happens. Mm. Um, if we think there's going to be geopolitical risk, maybe we want a defense stock or maybe we want oil stocks to hedge against a high oil price. Um, maybe we want gold stocks because actually we're concerned about competitive currency devaluation. With, these stocks won't all do well all of the time, but if you can build a portfolio that pays out significantly in these different scenarios, you're kind of hedging yourself against the unknown. I'm a, I'm a big fan of doing that rather than taking a very firm view on, I, I think this is going to happen in the future. I think that's that's quite dangerous as a portfolio manager. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot now, if that's all right, and say I'm, I'm looking at the smaller companies fact sheet here, and I can see diversified energy is, is the top holding in the portfolio. It was at the end of November, mm. about 2.5% position. Um, wh wh why, why is that? T tell me how the process churns that out as the kind of most exciting UK smaller company you can find. Yeah. Um, well, it's more that actually we can't find a lot of other exciting companies in the energy space that okay. we like that are high enough quality. So we're looking for energy exposure. Um, we are very firmly um, focused on sustainability as a, as a, mm. as a team and a business. And um, we are very conscious that fossil fuels are going to play a, a smaller role in the future than they are currently um, in terms of driving the global economy. So um, at, at this point in time, we don't own any direct oil or coal stocks. But what we do also understand is that you can't just switch off fossil fuels. <laughs> it's going to be decades and decades of using them. And our view is that good gas companies, providing there aren't um, significant methane leaks, are, are the cleanest way to access um, 
uh, uh, the, the oil and gas yeah. sector. More importantly, with diversified, the diversified energy companies, actually the cash flow profile, because they actually are a consolidator of existing gas wells, essentially. So they're a North, they're North American based. They buy up, um, you know, existing wells. Um, so they've got about, they own about 7,000 over in the US. And what you can do is plot a profile. There's a decline rate with a gas well where the gas over time falls as the pressure drops. But you can plot essentially quite an accurate cash flow profile of the company into the future. Um, and that provides a very stable set of cash flows. They do a lot of hedging, the management very conservative. So they're hedging forward um, several years uh, in the futures market with that with those gas prices. And so that gives you um, terrific visibility. And, and what's interesting about diversified gas is that it, it's trading actually very cheaply. It's got very high yield. It's because of this cash flow it throws off. Um, it's got a sort of, te- it's had a sort of 10% dividend yield, which is attractive for both the income fund and the small cap fund. Um, so what we like about it is the visibility on the existing cash flows. Rather than a lot of oil exploration companies, you're really relying on them, you know, hitting oil, if you like, finding the next big, yeah. the next big elephant, in, you know, and that's, that's a punt we're not willing to take generally. Um, so that's why you find us, we've got quite a big position in diversified energy because actually we don't have a lot of direct energy exposure elsewhere in the portfolio. Yeah. Okay, thank, th- thanks, Dan. Um, you, you've mentioned having these kind of uh, almost insur- companies like insurance policies against this and that risk in the portfolio. And that's interesting you're hearing discussing mm. the gold miners in that light. I think maybe in the equity income fund, there's Barrett Gold, Fresnillo, Centimene, a, 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 few, a few names. Um, now, uh, w- one of the other absolutely big macro challenges uh, out, out there is inflation and, and rising interest rates. Do you, what kind of insurance policies in the portfolio do you, ha- do you have against those? Well, again, they're two. I mean, they're two different yeah. things. Um, and obviously, you know, if you think about, if we just think about gold, gold, gold provided a very strong hedge for us in 2020. Mm. We had very strong performance from the gold stocks in that year. Uh, we sold down about half the exposure, and since then they've underperformed. Actually, the ones we had left in the portfolio for the last 12 yeah. months, and in particular, more recently, we've seen real. Um, real yields rising, mm. uh, which is typically seen is, is, is quite negative for gold. The reason we think that um, gold is actually going to be a very strong performer um, later this year and into the future is that actually the, the, the global economy is very leveraged. There's an enormous amount of credit. It's very difficult for it to sustain much higher yields and, and indeed interest rate rises. And what's really interesting is you're already seeing in this rapid rotation we've seen at the beginning of the year, you're already seeing the market pricing in three rate rises over in the US. Mm. Uh, in fact, Goldman Sachs came out this morning and said they, said they, they, they think there's going to be four. Um, now, if they're right, then I'm wrong on gold. Okay, and, and, and the economy can sustain four rate rises, then we're going to see even higher um, yields, then I would say gold will continue to underperform. Now, the good news is, if 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 they're right, is the reason those rate rises are coming through is actually the economy is performing very yeah. strongly. Uh, and actually, the stock market generally will, will do pretty well in that environment. And as, as long as you've got some cyclical exposure, you've got companies with pricing power. Um, so typically, companies with strong gross margins, for example, are really good at um, uh, hedging inflation. But it's, it's essentially companies with pricing power that can pass through prices to their, to their end customers. That, that's what gives you the protection in that inflationary environment. What, why I think gold will do well is that but what will actually occur here is that we'll, we might see a couple of interest rate rises. And whilst there'll be inflation expectations will be very volatile, you know, the, this whole argument between being structural inflation and, and transient, obviously there's, a, there's clearly a bit of both there mm. at the moment, or quite a lot of both, I should say. Um, how much of it's to do with supply chains, et cetera, we can debate 
um, to the cows come home. But but you know the long end of the yield curve is probably going to be pretty volatile. Would be my guess. What I think will happen though is I, d- I think the Fed will pull back from the from f- from from forecasting um, many rate rises. I think we might get a okay. couple, but I don't think we'll get many after that. And I think the moment they pull back from that, and the market sees that, and and people are then looking through. I I, I would have thought the long end of the yield curve will already be looking through to a cyclical slowdown, on, and you'll start to see your yields fall again. I think in that environment, gold does extremely well. Gold's really lagged, um, and I think a lot of the gold gold was only down four percent in dollar terms mm. last year, but gold stocks most of them derated and almost 50 percent relative um you don't need much strength in the gold price to make some serious money in these very cheap names so l- listen is that your central view do you, do you bet your portfolio on that absolutely yeah. not just to be clear i've only got about five percent of the income fund in mm. gold stocks i've only got about two or three percent of of the small cap fund i have been adding you mentioned sentiment that's the most recent purchase actually um so what we're not talking about, you know, swinging the bat on the whole portfolio, but we're just saying, actually, if we have that insurance policy, which is, off, you know, it can be like a 5% yeah. premium, if that doubles because actually other areas of the portfolio are struggling, that's really helpful at smoothing the returns in the portfolio. And that's what you're looking mm, for. Okay. Very, very interesting narrative there. Um, let, yeah. Let, let's move on a bit more to, to talk about the portfolios and where you've been finding interesting opportunities. Um yeah, I suppose, where, where have you been finding value in the UK market recently? Maybe we can split that into kind of large companies first and then move on to the smaller companies. Yeah, I mean, large caps, it's... It's, it's, it's value a, across the board, is it? it, it? There's some, so it it's slightly dull in some senses. That in, I mean, it sounds that's an awful thing to say, but what we're looking for is some of the big cap, cheap companies where actually we're starting to see various operational yes. improvement, maybe catalyst, to actually realise some of that value. So we've been adding back to... Good old-fashioned names like British American Tobacco, GlaxoSmithKine, Lloyds Bank. These are cheap companies where actually you're seeing some some kind of positive change in those companies. Mm. You know, it might be a repositioning of the tobacco companies into next-gen products, and the fact that you've got a higher dividend yield than your PE. Uh, and they're starting to deliver upgrades. It might be Lloyd's Bank, where you're getting a steepening yield curve. Um, they've gone through a massive transformation at Lloyd's. They're doing a lot of things right, and they're actually starting to deliver better numbers. Um, Glaxo is in a really interesting uh, sort of special situation now um, in, in terms of potentially demerging one of its largest yeah. businesses. Um, what, so, so what I call, these are classic old-fashioned stocks that have been left behind over the last few mm. years, where you wouldn't buy all of them, um, but but maybe where um, things are starting to look look up. Um, but as as you can tell, I'm I'm buying across a number of different sectors yeah. there. There's also some. So that would be the sort of large cap end. I mean, we're always looking to get into really high quality names that have derated significantly. So we 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 bought Reckitt Benkiza, for example, for the first time in I can't remember the last time I owned Reckitt's, but bought that in the autumn because Reckitt's had derated from sort of 24 times to 16 mm. times. Um, and we did quite a, a lot of work on it and actually think that the turnaround they, they've been working on for the last couple of years is probably going to succeed. And, and I could see that business actually gaining traction and really starting to see its organic growth rates pick up again in the future. And, and, and I think then it'll re-rate back to being you know, a much more highly rated sort of classic staple stock. So we, we, we do look for opportunities mm. like that um, uh, as, as well. So so that would be the large cap. And then on the small cap, there's always a myriad of great yeah. ideas. Um, you know, we've, we, we've been buying cheap industrial companies like Ecentra, uh, for example, um, mm-hmm. which is an interesting breakup story. Um, it was a company that we've engaged with the last couple of years on a, on a number of things. But it, What have you um, been engaging with them on? But interestingly, 
Well, we're engaging around. Actually, they, they, they've got a number of businesses. They've got a, they've got a world class components business, which is the one they want to focus on. But they've also got a filters business and a packaging business. And one of the areas we engaged with around packaging was just whether they could, you know, whether they could um, evolve the model and uh, and look to do a bit more recycling. Okay. Um, so they do things like packaging for, you know, like uh, if you go and buy a packet of tablets from Boots and and the, the packet around the tablets, you know, you've got a nice crisp packet. Um, there wasn't a lot of recycled cardboard going into any of these um and and we were asking you know we were su- su- suggesting that best in class packaging companies are now adding a lot more recycling in and uh, anyway what's interesting is that uh, it, nothing to do with our engagement i should think but but probably more to do with the strategic review they've actually decided to try and break the group up and focus on components yeah. and we think the sum of the parts means there's um, quite a lot of upside there which will now be realized probably a bit faster than maybe uh, we had first thought when we when we bought the shares. So that's a good you know that's a good example of a, a sort of value stock. I, I've mentioned Sentimin mm. adding back to the gold. I think this recent sell off in gold and the underperformance of the stocks is actually throwing up a really nice opportunity to start rebuilding positions there. So um, Sentimin is one we've been building um, more recently. Um, after having you know they they had a couple of years of <laughs> some pretty bad stuff. Well, yeah, they've had a, pre- a pretty difficult couple of years because they they had one of the big. W- walls in their main mine in Egypt right. collapsed and it created a big problem in their production profile. But we think they're on top of that now and the guidance is, is set sensibly. Um, so that would be another area. Um, what else have we been? Ah, we bought um, a Trato on-site energy. Okay. Um, so one of the companies that we own is Supermarket mm. Income REIT, uh, which is uh, one of the few REITs that we own, real estate investment trusts. Uh, Supermarket Income REIT are specialised in owning land that they then lease to Tesco's, Sainsbury's, Morrison's and Waitrose. So rock We're solid. We're giant superstores here, aren't Giant we? superstores. They're big multi-channels. That they, always, they target the big out-of-town um, multi-channel mm. stores where they're a kind of, you know, retailer at the front. They're a click and collect operation in the middle and an Amazon warehouse at the back doing deliveries essentially um, they've been doing some great work in that space um, uh, and you know one of the things that they were doing to help the supermarkets hit their net zero targets was put solar panels on the roofs of the big superstores um, now that's a big undertaking um, but it's a bit of a no-brainer for these supermarkets because uh, they use a lot of electricity, particularly to keep things mm. cold. As you know, they've got big freezers and fridges in supermarkets, <laughs> and four percent of the UK's electricity uh, consumption goes to uh, is, is is actually wow. supermarkets, believe it or not. Um, so it's really important they try and cut that um, to hit their own targets. And so putting um, solar panels on the roofs is a really um, interesting way of doing that. And it, it, it economically, it really makes a lot of sense. So they identified this as an opportunity. And what they've done is they've actually brought in a new expert management team and launched a new trust called Atrato Onsite Energy. They raised £150 million and we participated in that. And essentially, they're now the largest commercial installer of solar panels onto commercial buildings in the UK. So all your big FTSE companies like Unilever and Glaxo and all these guys that have got, you know, 25 odd massive Mm. offices and buildings around the country, they're a market now. They're a target for um, a Trato. And you can get very decent returns. Um, there's there's very little technology risk. There's very little com- competitive risk at the moment. So what that gives you is a bit like supermarket income. It gives you a very steady yield, steady growth. It's not going to shoot the lights out when there's a bull market in stocks, right? It's probably going to lag the market. But when these stocks really come into their own is they give you an index-linked um diversifier that maybe bonds once gave us many years ago, but now with bonds with negative real yields aren't really protecting our capital in the same mm. way. This kind of stock is a really important diversifier in, in people's portfolios. So 
you know, we look at, yeah, things like supermarket income, things like um, a try to onsite energy as being, again, these, they provide insurance policies. If you get a bear market phase, these companies will outperform strongly in all, in all yeah. likelihood. Oh, well, okay. Re- re- really, really interesting there. Supermarkets was something I'm, I'm keen to ask about quickly, actually, because Tesco is, is one of your biggest positions in the income fund. I think you might own Sainsbury's too. Yeah, um, we do. Yeah. Of, yeah. of course, the takeover of, of, of Morrison's by private equity buyers was, was a major story last year. Uh, and I've seen analysts commenting that Sainsbury's, maybe even Tesco, might, might not be too big. Uh, to be bid for, what, what what do you think? I think that's probably true. Mm. I mean, the private equity funds these days have enormous uh, firepower, don't yeah. they? Um, and we've seen Morrison's obviously go. Um, uh, as Asda obviously is the other mm-hmm. one, um, obviously which which was which was also uh, snapped up. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of different aspects to it. I guess the key the headlines would be first of all they have got quite a lot of real estate backing, and that's attractive um, in this low interest rate environment mm. um and that's obviously you know supermarket income rate's a good example of, of sort of trying to um extract that value but you know the supermarkets themselves sit on uh, quite a lot of real estate the second thing is um one of the unfortunate um i guess uh, results of, of the high energy inflation that we're seeing over the last we've seen over the last 12 months or so is that we are going to see i think uh, and also and also climate change we're going to see probably a reasonably sustained period of food price inflation. Yeah. And we've started to see it a little bit at the margin. Um, but that that is problematic. Um, you know, food, food, if you combine energy inflation and food price inflation, that starts to make life very difficult for a large chunk, a large proportion of the population, mm. p- particularly the lowest income households. Um, you know, I, I think I read today that about a third of a third of households in the UK are, are very concerned about you know, being able to afford their gas bills next year. Um, f- food price inflation is going to be another problem. Um, you know, the, the problem with high energy f- inflation, it feeds through to ammonia, fertilisers. Um, we've had some really bad weather and variable weather around the world that are impacting things like wheat yields, um, certainly, coffee is really interesting at the moment. You watch the price of coffees moved up very dramatically last year, and I think will go higher. And that's largely because the big coffee-producing nations are having a very difficult time at the moment. Brazil being being the, the sort of main mm. one. So, food food price inflation is is has all sort a bit like people always focus on the oil price, but but food price inflation can have a lot of quite nasty knock-on effects into the rest of the economy as well. Um, supermarkets are a great hedge on that, believe it or not. Um, they're very highly correlated with food price inflation, uh, 90% correlated. So they, they, they benefit from food price inflation? They tend, to, they tend to do, yeah, they tend to, when, when food price inflation is higher than core inflation, they tend to outperform. Okay. And um, that, that would be one, one macro driver. The reason we actually bought those stocks in the first place wasn't because we were making some big call on food price inflation, I should add. Mm. It, was, it was more about the recovery situation at Tesco. Uh, we actually originally bought Tesco in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a long-term holding um, and we've been watching the, the recovery of that business with interest. Because you might recall it had been kind of written off. There was, you know, Aldi and Lidl were going kill, to kill them in the marketplace. Amazon were coming in with Amazon Fresh. Yeah. These companies were, were dead, you know, and as a result, they were rated as if they were dead. Tesco's margins had, had gone from 6% to 2%. Um, and and then we started to see the turnaround under Dave Lewis, who came in from Unilever, and then that's continued uh, with the new management team. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, so there's a number there's a number of things there, but we still think that the Tesco story is playing out very nicely at the moment, and it, it delivers a strong yield and, and is, is a good holding. Within the Staples area, it's actually a, you know, a relatively cheap stock that we can can play uh, in the income fund. Okay. Uh, 
Thanks, Dan. L- last question from me. Uh, another mini theme in your in your portfolios, I think, is is these companies which are underrated in terms of these their environmental credentials or or the role they can play in the in the energy transition. Could you? I think Volution's one name you've mentioned before, but c- can you talk about that trend a bit more? Yeah. So. We're not experts at identifying the next big um, green tech winners. I wish we yeah. were. I mean, I think that the innovation wave that we're now going to see around decarbonisation is really exciting. Um, it's going to be probably similar to, you know, the tech innovation wave of the last 20 years. We're going to now see this in, in, in decarbonising the economy globally. And I think that's going to throw up some amazing investment opportunities. We're going to see some amazing, um, you know, innovation and, and, and change, which... Which, which is which is always really exciting as an investor to, to look at that. I think where, where we think we're, we're, we're better placed as an investment team is probably to try and find um, existing profitable companies that are trying to transition and become, if you like, greener. Mm. Um, and, and, and if we can get ahead of the market on, on, on that, we think that provides an opportunity to maybe pick up um, stocks where the growth rates are going to be a bit higher than the market expects. We get earnings upgrades and you get a re-rating. You mentioned Volution. Uh, we bought Volution Group um, a couple of years ago. Um, that's, that's a good example. They're a market leader in, in fans um, into the building industry. And where Volution historically would have been seen as a pretty high quality cash generative business, but actually ultimately just a cyclical building business. Um, when you start to look at the legislation coming um, behind decarbonizing homes and commercial buildings, you start to realize that there's going to be some very significant change there. And if we can find companies that can benefit from that, we're likely to do quite well. So um, the reason fans become important is because, um, as you know, legislation in 2025 is going to um, stop house builders putting gas boilers into new houses. Um, and there's going to be a gradual push to try and move people over to, to greener uh, energy sources such as air source heat pumps or ground source heat pumps, um, and if you if you start putting air source heat pumps into into the buildings, then they don't work as well. They don't they don't they're not as efficient um, in terms of throwing out heat as gas boilers. Uh, so you need better insulation. If you have better insulation, in order that the environment in the home is pleasant and isn't stuffy, you need better ventilation. And so suddenly the ventilation specialists like Volution Groups see their demand go mm. up relative to where it was before. And what you find with these companies is that they might be growing along at GDP or if they're a market leader, maybe a GDP plus one or plus two type company. So they might be growing at four or five percent annually. And as a result, they attract a certain rating in the market. Maybe they attract a, a market rating of 13 or 14 times. And then the growth rate accelerates to six or seven percent or eight percent because of that additional driver. Yeah. What happens is the market catches onto that new growth rate and goes, ooh, this is a growth stock. And they re-rate the stock. And suddenly you find that stock's trading on 25 times. And you've not actually done a lot really. They haven't not actually delivered much of the growth yet, but but the stock moves up in anticipation of that future growth. So what we're trying to so that that's a good example. Um, you know, we've got other companies in the portfolio like smart metering systems. You know, smart meters are at the heart of the, the, the decarbonisation of the UK economy. It's a big part of government policy. Um, we buy you know, we, we buy retailers where we're seeing that they're doing lots of fantastic stuff around uh, recycling or you know, DFS furniture is one of the most advanced in terms of nearshoring. They're not shipping uh, leather from South America to China to have it built into a safe and brought over to the UK, which is actually not very sustainable. They're already uh, a lot of their supply chain is nearshored in both uh, the, the East Midlands in the UK and also in Eastern Europe. And, and so we're looking for I guess we're looking for companies. Strix is another example. Um, Biff Biff. Um, in, there's lots of we've got quite a few names in the portfolio I could, I could talk to a, a dozen <laughs> different names where maybe at face value you look at them and go well that sounds like a pretty standard 
boring company what, what are you, why are you interested in that one and actually what we've we think we've found is that, that there are some particular actions that management taking strategy you know that, that, that are actually going to accelerate the growth rate mm. and a lot of the time we're looking for you know the government subsidies and the regulation becoming tailwinds for these companies to, to drive that growth and we think that's a really interesting um, growth theme now for the, for the next probably the rest of my investment career I would have thought mm. Okay, well, thanks, Dan. On that on that future-friendly note, uh, perhaps that's a, a good point to wrap things up. So, uh, Dan, th- thanks very much for joining me today, and it, it, it's great to learn more about what you do. Thanks, Jeremy. Good luck for 2022. Thank you very much. Same to you. 